We'll be in Mark chapter 3 in just a moment as we continue our trek through the Gospel of Mark. But uh, let me give you by way of introduction a few of these thoughts. Mark chapter 3. Some of you may be familiar with the name C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis was born in Ireland in 1898. He passed away in England in 1963. He's probably one of the most influential writers of the 20th century. A brilliant and imaginative thinker. Uh, C.S. Lewis was a scholar and professor of English literature at Oxford and Cambridge. Yet he became uh, best known for his popular works of children's fantasy and his writings and talks on the Christian faith. Uh, Once he was an avowed atheist, and Lewis's own intellectual and spiritual journey over the years led him to the God of the Bible and ultimately to Jesus Christ. If you are not familiar with his name, you probably have heard of his book series, The Chronicles of Narnia, or one of those books, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, Lewis was also a member of a literary group of writers that included friends such as J.R.R. Tolkien, whom you may also not have heard of. But if I were to ask you if you were familiar with the movie series The Lord of the Rings trilogy or The Hobbit, you've probably heard of those films that were based on books by Tolkien. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis were personal friends. And you know, after C.S. Lewis came came to know the Lord Jesus Christ as a Savior, He became very involved in apologetics. By apologetics, we mean the the defense of the faith. How do you defend your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? How do you stand up for the Word of God? How do you answer people's objections? We call that apologetics. It just means the defense of our faith. And in his writings on apologetics, uh, C.S. Lewis came up with a phrase that has become very well known over the years. You may recognize it when I read it to you in a moment. But Lewis was concerned that there were too many people out there who were saying that Jesus was a good teacher, that he was uh, was a, a noble moral leader, that he was a religious revolutionary, that he was a man of immense compassion and great wisdom. And there were many people in Jesus' day, as there have always been, and as they're like today, who, who want to give Jesus all kinds of accolades, all sorts of positive remarks, and they want to paint him as this nice, noble, compassionate, kind, insightful, outstanding teacher. C.S. Lewis was, was convinced that this was one option that is just absolutely impossible. It is absolutely impossible. This is what he wrote. He said, that is not a possible consideration of Jesus. He could not just be a good man. He could not just be a moral man. He could not just be a religious leader or a trustworthy leader. He could not just be wise or be a spiritual mentor only because of one very important matter. And that's this, that Jesus claimed to be God. And as soon as he claimed to be God, he eliminated himself from the category of good, wise, and moral because good people, wise people, sensible people don't claim that they're God. And they don't want you to think that they're God. 
Jesus has even been considered by many people as being humble, meek, and mild. Well, humility is not compatible with declaring that you're the God of the universe, that you're the creator, that you have been alive eternally, that you have made everything that is in existence, and that you are the final judge of everyone, and that you will reign over everything forever and ever. And as soon as Jesus declared that he was God the Son, that he had the same nature as God, as soon as he said, if you've seen me, you've seen God, then it was no longer possible, said Lewis, to just designate him as a good teacher. That's not even an option. Because he said, good, sensible, wise men don't make such outrageous claims. C.S. Lewis then said, one of these three things is true. And this is the familiar line probably for many of you. He said, Jesus Christ, he was either a lunatic on the level of somebody who thinks he's a poached egg, or he's a liar at such a calculated and clever and extreme level as to be an unequaled purveyor of deception, or he is the Lord. But Lewis said, forget all the patronizing nonsense that he's a good moral teacher. That's not an option. He said he's either a lunatic, a liar, or he's the Lord. Now, we can't be sure, of course, but we can't help but wonder if C.S. Lewis didn't develop that phrase from a study of Mark chapter 3. Because in this passage that we're going to read in just a moment, Jesus' family called him a lunatic. The scribes, the religious leaders of the day, they called him a demon-possessed liar. Yet the testimony of the scripture and the testimony of Jesus himself is that he is the Lord of all. And those are the only options. So if you decided to come to church today, I'm sure you think that you have an acceptable view of Jesus, and you probably do. You may be here to give him some honor as a good teacher or as a great religious leader, but but none of that is, is possible. There are people today who foolishly say that Jesus never claimed to, 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 to be God, but they have apparently never read the Gospels. They have never read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, because Jesus very plainly on a number of occasions says, I am equal with God. I am God. The New Testament is written very clearly to make it obvious to any reader that Jesus is not a lunatic. Lunatics don't heal sick people. Lunatics don't raise dead people. Lunatics don't dominate the demonic world. Lunatics don't speak the way that Jesus spoke. They don't think the way that he thought. Lunatics don't act the way that he acted. Lunatics are not marked by kindness and mercy and compassion, nor is Jesus a liar. He is not the cleverest and perhaps the greatest of all deceivers because liars don't raise people from the dead. Frauds don't heal sick people. They don't virtually banish disease from an entire nation for three years. Frauds don't dominate the world of demons either, and neither do frauds die and then come back out of the grave. So we're really left with the only alternative regarding Jesus. Either you want to join those who think he's a lunatic, or those who think he's the greatest liar of all time, or you're left with, with one option. And that is the option that Jesus is who he claimed to be, that he is God. And the evidence is there. Miraculously virgin born, a perfect sinless life, power over the natural world, power over the spiritual world, power over life, power over death, power over creation. Clearly, Jesus Christ 
is Lord. That is the only option for any thinking person. And anyone who doesn't accept that fact has either not thought through all the implications of their choice or they are in denial of the truth. They are in rebellion against God. A person may not like the fact of who Jesus was, but it is a fact Jesus Christ is God. He is the creator of this world. He is the creator of the entire universe. He is the Lord of all. He is not a liar. He is not a lunatic. He is the Lord of all. And let's read it in our passage today. Mark chapter 3, we're going to begin to read in verse 20. We will go to the end of the chapter. Mark chapter 3, starting in verse 20. Then the multitude came together again, so that they could not so much as eat bread. But when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, He has Beelzebub, and by the ruler of the demons he casts out demons. So he called them to himself, and he said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but as an end. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then he will plunder his house. Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they may utter, but he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness and is subject to eternal condemnation because they said he has an unclean spirit. Then his brothers and his mother came, and standing outside they sent to him, calling him. And a multitude was sitting around him, and they said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. But he answered them, saying, Who is my mother or my brothers? And he looked around in a circle at those who sat about him, and said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. Jesus Christ was what you might call in our day a phenomenon. Without TV or radio or internet or any print media of any kind, newspapers, magazines, etc., without any of the kinds of communications options that we have today, Jesus was the talk of the entire country. And it all happened within 12 to 18 months. It all happened with word-of-mouth communication. People were flocking to hear him and to see him, as we saw last week, from a hundred miles in every direction. And most of the time they walked. Jesus had become a phenomenon, and why not? He was teaching with authority. He was teaching with confidence and character and Holy Spirit power. He was performing miraculous healings every week. There was nothing he could not heal. Even the dreaded disease of leprosy, even totally paralyzed people with crippled hands and crippled legs and blind eyes, you name it, Jesus could fix it. And word spread like wildfire, and people were flocking to him from all over the country. Jesus was also standing up to the Pharisees with no fear. He was literally shutting them down. He left the Pharisees and the scribes speechless at every confrontation with them. 
He answered them with scripture, and they had no answer for what he was doing and what he was saying. They were furious. He was making them look foolish, and they were losing their grip of political and religious power. And the crowds have now become absolutely relentless. They are relentless because they can't get enough miracles. They can't get enough of the benefit that comes to them from the miracles. They come if they're sick. They come if they're demon-possessed. They come with the people they know, with their family members, their friends who have any kind of issues, and they want healings, and they want deliverance, and they know that Jesus has the power to do it. And there's never been anything like it going on in the history of Israel. Rabbis all had followings, of course. That was the way it worked. You were a rabbi, you had a group of people who followed you as you taught. And the rabbi would mentor them and taught anyone else who would listen. But there had never, ever been a rabbi who had these kinds of crowds. And there had never been a rabbi who could do what Jesus did. So the crowd we see as we started our reading today, the crowd gets large. And the crowd gets demanding and, 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 and aggressive. And the crowd becomes an obstacle. And they're beginning to be con- concerned about him. And so it says in verse 20, The multitude came together again so that they could not so much as eat bread. They were so aggressive in crowding around the Lord Jesus and mobbing him everywhere, he can't even sit down and eat a meal. So this information kind of gets back to his family. Because Jesus can't get away from the crowd. They're in Nazareth. They're not too far away. The next verse says, When his own people heard about this, it's a Jewish phrase, his own people heard, literally, those of his, is what that means, generally referring to his family. So when his family heard about it, it says they went to lay hold of him, meaning to take custody of him. To, to seize him. It's the same verb that's used all throughout Mark's gospel when John the Baptist was arrested and then, and then beheaded. Later when they arrested Jesus, they came and they took custody of him. They seized him. And to say his family comes down from Nazareth and they want to take custody of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus' brothers, I believe, really wanted to go and rescue him from the crowd and take custody of him. I think they are convinced that he has brought this on himself because they're saying he is out of his mind. What did the family think of Jesus? They thought he was a lunatic. They thought he was crazy. Now, did Mary think that? Of course not. Mary knew exactly who Jesus was. The angel told her before he was ever born. She told him, and she told Mary, or the angel told Mary that she, that that Jesus would be the Son of the Most High, the Holy Child. Mary knew that she was a virgin. She knew her baby would grow up to be her Savior. She knew all those things, but the scripture says that Mary kept all of these things and pondered them in her heart. And whatever she may have said to the rest of the kids who were born to Joseph and Mary, they didn't believe it. Now, we don't know what she may have said. The scripture doesn't record it. But whatever it was, they didn't believe it. Joseph had died at some point before Jesus began his ministry. How long before this, we don't know. But we know from other portions of the scripture that Joseph and Mary had four more sons who are listed by name. Actually, they're listed by name in chapter 6 of Mark. And at least two daughters, because it says Jesus had sisters, plural. So there were at least two of them, may have been three or four. And in John chapter 7 and verse 5, it says that Jesus' brothers and sisters did not believe in him. They were not believing in him. And you can just imagine what family life would be like with a perfect child in the mix. 
We've talked about it before. You know, I mean, if you actually saw some kid who was literally perfect, they'd all think he was odd, he's strange, or something kind of weird about him. You know, I mean, he's just. I mean, every every comment he makes is perfect, and every response he makes is perfect, and every action would be perfect, and, and none of us have ever experienced anything like that, nor will we ever. And every reaction to what anybody did would be a perfect reaction. Everything would be exactly the right thing to do, done in the right way, with absolutely the right attitude every time, and I assure you, and you all know it as well, that would be enough to irritate all of your siblings who were sinners. Who does he think he is? Doesn't he ever get in trouble for anything? Why is he so perfect? You think things weren't like that 2,000 years ago? I mean, that's what happened today. Human nature is just the same. If you have a, a sinless child in the house, and the other six kids are, 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 are all sinners, you think, how do you think that's going to go? And, and Jesus drew no attention to himself as he's growing up. He doesn't act in God-like ways. He doesn't create anything. He doesn't perform any miracles. He just lives a holy, righteous, perfect life growing up. And so I'm sure that Jesus' siblings thought of him as being a little odd. There's just something strange, they'd say to their friends, there's just something a little strange about Big Brother. They, they definitely did not believe in him. Scripture makes that very clear in John 7, verse 5. They were not believing in him. And so now that this very odd child, this brother that they can't relate to, this brother that they can't connect to, he's apparently just, he has gone over the edge. He has now lost his mind. He's declaring himself to be God. He's proclaiming that he has supernatural powers. He's going to get himself killed because he's literally creating this stampede of people coming to him. And so we're just surmising now. We guess that, that maybe the brothers decide the best thing to do is just go down there and rescue him. Rescue him before his, his lunatic craziness costs him his life, or for that matter, brings further embarrassment to the family. Back to our C.S. Lewis quote, they didn't think Big Brother was just a good teacher, a spiritual mentor, or some incredibly wise rabbi. They thought he was out of his mind. They thought he was a lunatic. And so they went down to Capernaum to seize him, to take custody of him, because they thought he had gone literally crazy. But the scribes went even further than that. They said Jesus was demon-possessed. They said in verse 22, the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, He has Beelzebub, and by the ruler of the demons he cast out demons. Beelzebub was originally the name of a Philistine deity, a false god of the Philistines. The shortened name you might be more familiar with would be Baal, B-A-A-L. You've seen that, you read the Old Testament. It, it, it literally means the, the, the Lord of the Flies or the Lord of the Flyers, as Baal was, or Beelzebub was usually depicted with wings, and he was one of the gods who controlled diseases which were believed to be primarily carried by flies. So Beelzebub, or Baal, was Lord of the Flies. He was the one who controlled sickness and disease. And over the centuries in the Old Testament, Beelzebub came to be used as one of the names for Satan, the one who rules over the demons. 
And so the Pharisees, the scribes here, they were saying that Jesus was casting out demons by satanic power. Now that's a totally ridiculous notion, which Jesus points out to them in, in these verses. Jesus says Satan doesn't throw out Satan. He says then in verse 23, how can Satan cast out Satan? The king's divided against itself, that kingdom can't stand. He says in verse 26, if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he can't stand, but he has an end. He said, Satan, does, Satan can't throw out Satan. Demons don't throw out demons. The devil does not fight himself. That doesn't even make sense. He said, if you want to rob the estate of a powerful man, you kill the guards and you tie up the powerful man. Then you rob his estate. Jesus said, I'm throwing out demons because I'm more powerful than they are. I am binding the power of the devil so I can throw them out. He said, it's, it, it's, it's ridiculous to think or say that Satan fights himself. That's nonsense. But then we come to this very interesting and often misunderstood passage about the unpardonable sin. Look what Jesus says in verse 28. Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men, but whatever blasphemies and whatever blasphemies they may utter, but he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation because they said he has an unclean spirit. The unpardonable or, or meaning unforgivable sin or blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is mentioned here in Mark 3 and it's also mentioned in the parallel passage in Matthew 12. Jesus says all sin can be forgiven, even all kinds of blasphemy, but if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, that cannot be forgiven. So what, what, what is that? What is Jesus talking about? The, the unforgivable sin is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and blasphemy means a defiant, open rejection. That's what blaspheme means, to, to, to be defiant and openly reject. And Jesus says, when you, when you openly reject and defy what the Holy Spirit of God is doing, then he said, you, you, even, even in the face of undeniable evidence, then he says, you have committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. They had witnessed undeniable evidence that Jesus was working miracles in the power of the Holy Spirit, yet they claimed that he was demonic. They accused Jesus in person, on earth, of being demon-possessed. They had no excuse for that choice. They were not speaking out of ignorance or misunderstanding. The Pharisees knew from what Jesus had done, the prophecies he had fulfilled, that he was sent by God to be the Messiah of Israel. They knew the prophecies were being fulfilled. They saw Jesus' wonderful works. They heard his clear presentation of the truth, yet they deliberately chose to deny the truth and, and defiantly closed their eyes and became willfully blind. They slandered the Holy Spirit. It was a formal, open rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ. This was their final rejection of God's offer of grace. They had set their course for judgment, and God was going to let them go. Jesus pronounced that sin to be unforgivable. And although there are varying opinions on this, I do not believe that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit can be duplicated today. Jesus Christ is not on earth. No one can personally see Jesus perform a miracle and then attribute that power to Satan instead of the Holy Spirit. This was a specific situation in which the Jewish religious leaders 
openly slandered the work of the Holy Spirit through the Lord Jesus Christ, and it was the last straw, so to speak, in their final rejection of the Lord. The only unpardonable or unforgivable sin that you can commit today is that of continuing in unbelief. There is no forgiveness for a person who dies rejecting Christ. The Holy Spirit is at work in the world, convicting people of sin and righteousness and judgment, as John 16 says. And if that person resists that conviction and does not repent, then he will not be forgiven. There is no forgiveness for someone who dies without faith in Christ. That is the only unforgiven sin. God has provided for our salvation through His Son. You all know John 3.16. Forgiveness is found exclusively in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know that from John 14.6. Most of you can quote that. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And to, to reject the only Savior is to be left with no way of salvation. To reject the only one who can forgive us is obviously unforgivable. There are many folks out there today who are afraid that they have committed some sin that God cannot or will not forgive. They feel like there's maybe there's no hope for them no matter what they do. That is totally unbiblical. James chapter 4 verse 8 says, Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Romans 5.20 says, Where sin abounded, grace abounded more. The Apostle Paul called himself the chief of sinners. And yet the grace of God reached out to him. And if you have sensed the conviction of the Holy Spirit in your heart, if you are carrying a load of guilt today for something that you have done, you rest assured, I can, I can assure you, you have not committed the unpardonable sin. If you had committed the unpardonable sin, you wouldn't care. The very fact that you still have a sense of conviction of sin means that you, you have not rejected the Lord. Because if you come to the place where you just don't care anymore, as I've, I've told you this before, I had a guy tell me probably about 25 years ago, in the hospital, 90 years old, near death. I opened my New Testament to read something to him. He says, Larry, he says, Larry don't bother. He says, I'm headed for hell and I don't care. In all my 40 years plus of ministry, I've never had somebody tell me they're headed for hell and they don't care, except for him. What happened to him? He just decided, I am rejecting God. I don't care. I'm going to hell and I don't care. Wow. Bold statement for a guy on the verge of death. And a few weeks later, he died. But if you are today, or you know somebody today, who, who has a sense of the conviction of the Holy Spirit, maybe you, and you are carrying some kind of guilt today, I, 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 I can assure you, you have not committed the unpardonable sin, because if you had, you wouldn't care anymore. The writer of Hebrews, wonderful verse, Hebrews 7.25 says, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost, meaning completely, totally, to the very end, all the way. Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through Him. Our Lord will never fail. He said, all that the Father gives me come to me, and he who comes to me I will never cast out in John 6. 
Isaiah 12, 2 says, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For Yah, the Lord, is my strength and my song. He also has become my salvation. You see, if God is working in your heart, then run to the Lord Jesus Christ for forgiveness. He will receive you. Then Mark closes this portion of his gospel with Jesus teaching about the most important relationship in the universe. Returning to this issue of Jesus' earthly family, Mark records this. Let's look at verse 31. Then his brothers and his mother came standing outside, and they sent to him, calling him. And a multitude was sitting around him, and they said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are, are outside seeking you. But he answered them, saying, Who is my mother or my brothers? And he looked around in a circle at those who sat about him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. And for you Bible highlighters, verse 35 is another classic verse to draw attention to. Whoever does the will of God is my mother, my sister, and my brother. Jesus is basically saying, that the most important relationship that exists is our relationship to Him. Our relationship to Jesus Christ is more important than your relationship to your wife or your husband. Your relationship to Jesus Christ is more important than your relationship to your children or your grandchildren. Your relationship to Jesus Christ is more important than your relationship with your parents and your grandparents and your cousins and the rest of your family. Jesus Christ's relationship to being related to Him is the most important relationship in the world. Why? Because that is the only relationship that is eternal. The only relationship that is eternal is your relationship to Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus says, whoever does the will of God is my mother and my brother and my sister. Our relationship to the Lord Jesus is the only one that will matter in eternity. Our relationship to each other as followers of Jesus is the only eternal relationship. All other relationships are a part of this world and a part of this life. I've had, there are no, a number of folks who, who come to our church who, who have unsaved family members. And a, and a number of them have, have said things to me about, you know, I, I just, I mean, I feel like this, this, this is my family. And, you know, in a sense, they're right because you're on the same page. You're going the same direction spiritually. You're focused on the same things. You've got the same desires. You've got the same priorities. And for people who don't know Christ, it's very, very different. And so Jesus looks at the crowd here, this, people just packed around him, and says, who's my mother? Who's my brother's? He said, you folks right here. He said, you're my mother. You're my brothers. You're my sisters. Because you are trying to do the will of God. You see, there, there's an interesting parallel passage in Luke chapter 11. I would like you to turn there if you would. Luke chapter 11. Something very similar is going on here. Luke chapter 11. If you read through Luke 11, you would see a lot of the same, a lot of the same things. And starting in verse 14, he's got the same people who are accusing him of being, uh, who are being demon possessed. Uh, you've got, uh, you know, you've got some of those things going on, and Jesus tells some of the same stories. But look up, excuse me, at verse 27. 
Jesus, Luke records Jesus speaking, much like Mark records him in our passage today. But right in the middle of his teaching, this woman in the crowd calls out to him. Look what she says, verse 27, Luke 11, verse 27. And it happened, as he spoke these things, that a certain woman from the crowd raised her voice. She calls out, and she says to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you, and the breasts which nursed you. It's a classic Jewish phrase to, to bless the mother of Jesus. Your mother must be blessed to have a son like you. I mean, it's really a wonderful compliment. You know, she said, oh, you mean, she, she's just so overwhelmed with, with who Jesus is and so, so moved by his teaching and by his character and by his stand for righteousness. She's so thrilled to be around Jesus that, that, that she calls out in, in this very Jewish fashion this beautiful blessing to Jesus' mother. But look what Jesus says in the next verse. But he said, more than that, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Putting your faith in Jesus Christ, following Him for the rest of your life, being obedient to Him, doing what He says, loving what He loves, being committed to Him and to His Word, that is the most important relationship in the universe. Because it's the only one that is eternal. Jesus says, whoever does the will of God is my brother, my sister, and my mother. Where do you stand in your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? He's not a liar. He's not a lunatic. He's the Lord of all. And whoever does His will is His family. The most important relationship on, in the universe. Where do you stand with the Lord Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful for the clear, clear teaching of the Word of God. That we know who you are. We know why you came. We know what you're here for. We know what this is all about. And I pray, Father, you would help us to do the will of God. As Jesus said, so important to hear the Word of God and keep it, to do it. And whoever does your will, we are your family. It's such a wonderful thing, Lord, such a blessed thing for all of eternity to be related to Jesus Christ by faith. Lord, you know we're all sinners. We know we're all sinners. And we're so thankful for the forgiveness that we have through Jesus. You were perfect. You were sinless. And when you suffered and died on that cross, you were doing so to pay for our sin. So we rejoice, Lord, that you have forgiven us by your grace. And that we can, by faith in Jesus, be a part of the family of God. Lord, help us to keep our priorities right. Help us to keep our focus where it should be. On our most important relationship, and that is the relationship with you. May we be obedient to your word. Lord, we pray for our friends and loved ones. Maybe they don't know much about the Bible. Maybe they don't know any better. Maybe they're just being rebellious. We don't know their hearts. 
But they think Jesus was a, a nice guy or a good man, but they've never really bowed the knee before him as the Lord of all. I pray, Father, that their hearts would be humbled, they would recognize who Jesus is, and that they would run to Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.